microphone's about right. I just sort of guessed about what height it should go here. Is it either, you want it louder back there? Okay. And do you turn it up back there or do I adjust it by moving this up and down? Let me just keep talking here and we'll see how it's going. It's getting better. Okay, good, good. Anybody else uh, raise a hand having problems with the microphone? Go ahead, and if it's uh, if it's a thirty second response, I'll do it now. I'm not sure I even want to get into this right now. Let him finish and then I'll, I'll, I'll make sure, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I'm not going to do anything with that right now because I don't want to take time from this lecture to deal with that. And I probably should have said that before you even began. Um, the question concerns the relationship between spirit and breath and eventually ends up with uh, the que a question about abortion and does life begin at conception and so forth. I will say this much. I don't think the biblical or theological tradition provides us with any clear answer to any of that. And um, so, uh, but I won't say any more about that right now. <laughs> okay. Um, always hard for me to ignore a question, but I do want to get into the subject matter of the second talk this morning, which is Jesus and God. And the reason this is part of the series, as well as part of the book on um, the God we never knew, is because for Christians, that is, uh, yeah, for our tradition, Jesus is the decisive 
image of God or manifestation of God. And I'll come back to that theme at the end of my lecture as well as talking about it a number of times during the course of the lecture. And this claim about Jesus being the image of God is wonderfully captured in a single sentence from the letter to the Colossians in uh, uh, the New Testament. It's Colossians 1.15, where the author, whether Paul or a follower of Paul, says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the Greek word for image there is icon. Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. And so now setting my timer, here we go. Uh, my topic then is Jesus, <coughs> Jesus and God. <coughs> I want to begin by acknowledging very briefly that it's a very exciting time in Jesus scholarship, and I feel very grateful to be part of the discipline at a time like this. Since about the year 1980, there has been going on what some of us refer to as a renaissance in Jesus scholarship, others call a third quest for the historical Jesus, and still others speak of as a renewed quest for the historical Jesus. And there has been a burst of publishing since 1980, um, a um, um, development of interdisciplinary ways of looking at this material, the use of new models, to some extent new archaeological finds and even new manuscript discoveries that are fueling this renaissance. And of course within the discipline there is now considerable controversy as well because of the critique that Luke Timothy Johnson from uh, Candler School of Theology at Emory University has done of essentially all the rest of us, a two-pronged critique that we are doing our work badly and secondly, that no matter how well we did it, it would be irrelevant anyway because the only Jesus who matters, according to Johnson, is the canonical Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, not the Jesus whom one can glimpse through historical reconstruction. But in addition to all of this ferment within the discipline, there is also widespread public interest in the figure of Jesus. And I find this even more interesting in a way uh, a couple quick examples of that. In the last five years now, five different scholarly books on the historical Jesus have made it onto Publishers Weekly 10 best-selling lists in religion. And this is a list for which all books published in religion are eligible. Devotional books, books by the Pope, books by Billy Graham, the Angel books, the Chicken Soup books, and so forth. So for works about the historical Jesus to make that list is quite remarkable. And many of you are aware that a year ago this Easter, Jesus was on the cover of all three major news magazines the same week, and it wasn't just Jesus, it was the historical study of Jesus that was the cover story on all three news magazines that week. There's only one other person who has ever made the, the cover of all three the same week, uh, that was Magic Johnson, and that's not bad company. Okay. So, having acknowledged that uh, it's an exciting time in the discipline, let me now turn to speaking about the figure of Jesus, both historically and in terms of his theological significance for Christians. This is an important topic for a number of reasons. 
it's important, first of all, because of the extraordinary things that our tradition says about Jesus. We as Christians have commonly spoken of Jesus as divine, even as God. Uh, the Gospel of John speaks of him as the Word made flesh or as God incarnate. And of course, in the creeds and in the Trinity, Jesus is spoken of as co-eternal with God, co-equal with God, of one substance with God, as one with God. We hear this also in the language of Christian worship and devotion in which Jesus is praised as God and prayers are addressed to Jesus as God. Moreover, he is commonly spoken of as the only Son of God and as the exclusive way of salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. By this name alone shall you be saved, and so forth. So it's important because of the extraordinary things that we have said about Jesus. And the topic of Jesus and God is important also because many people, including many Christians in our time, puzzle about all this language. What does this language mean? For some it has become incredible and others aren't sure what to make of it and still other Christians vigorously defend it. So what are we to make of this extraordinary language about Jesus? How are we to think of Jesus and God? This is, of course, the classic question of Christology, the relationship of Jesus to God. What, what, what was and what is that relationship? Let me provide you now with the central claim of this lecture and a brief roadmap as I unpack that question. My central claim is very simple, namely, seeing the distinction between the pre-Easter Jesus, the historical Jesus, and the post-Easter Jesus, the risen living Christ, sheds a lot of light on how we might think of the relationship between Jesus and God. The distinction, seeing that distinction, greatly illuminates the question. Now, there was a time in my life when I didn't know about that distinction. And in, in a way, I really didn't know about that distinction until I hit seminary at age 22. And when I was a child, I simply put together everything I heard about Jesus into a single pot. Whatever I learned about Jesus through Christmas pageants, through scripture readings, through the hymns of the church, through Christian preaching, and so forth. And the result is what I now call the composite Jesus, okay, the composite Jesus, everything you've ever heard about Jesus put together in a fairly undifferentiated way. As a result, by late childhood, I really thought of Jesus as more divine than human. And that's because I took it for granted that even as a historical figure, he was the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God, and so forth. And I therefore thought that he had both the mind of God and the power of God. I figured that the reason that he knew stuff is because he had a divine mind. And as a child, I think I thought that if you asked Jesus any question, he would know the answer, whether it was the theory of relativity or the capital of Kansas. He would have been great at Jeopardy or Trivial Pursuit. You know? <laughs> And I figured that the reason that he could do miracles is because he had the power of God. After all, walking on the water 
and feeding a multitude with a few loaves and fishes were pretty impressive events. And so I really thought of him, even as a Galilean peasant of the first century, as really being God in human form. For 30 years, more or less, God walked around on earth. And this way of thinking of Jesus also went with my childhood way of thinking about God as a supernatural being out there. Within this way of thinking about God as out there and occasionally intervening, Jesus became the primary intervention of God. Jesus became a visitor, as it were, from another realm. God intervened in this world by sending Jesus as God's son to this world, and Jesus was thus God in human flesh. Now, that's the prologue. I no longer think of God that way, as you know from last night, and I no longer think of Jesus that way. So let me now turn to the main body of my lecture, namely the distinction between the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus, and how we might think of each in relationship to God. I begin with very compact definitions of each. And by the way, you have a handout that gives you a roadmap of the lecture as well, though I guess this compact definition isn't on the handout. I just reminded myself of what's in it. So, a very compact definition of each, which I will then expand at greater length. The pre-Easter Jesus. By the pre-Easter Jesus, I mean, of course, the historical Jesus, a Galilean Jewish peasant who was born not later than the year 4 BC and who was executed by the Romans almost certainly in the year 30 AD. The pre-Easter Jesus is a flesh and blood figure, a figure of the past, in an important sense, the pre-Easter Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is simply dead and gone. He's not around anymore. And there's no denial of Easter in that. It's simply a recognition that the protoplasmic Jesus, if you will, is a figure of the past. The post-Easter Jesus, on the other hand, very simply, is what Jesus became after his death. And to put that more fully and slightly more specifically, the post-Easter Jesus is the Jesus of Christian tradition and experience. And both nouns are important. The Jesus of Christian tradition, what Jesus becomes in the developing tradition of the church throughout the centuries, and the Jesus of Christian experience, that is, uh, the post-Easter Jesus is a figure of the present, whom people continue to experience to this day. And I'll say more about that uh, tomorrow morning, especially during the adult education hour. So, having compactly defined each, let me now uh, speak uh, in more detail about each of these figures. The pre-Easter Jesus. What was he like? What can be said about him? And here's the point at which your handout becomes uh, directly relevant. And for the sake of economy, and also because I know that many of you have read at least one of my books about Jesus, and some of you have seen uh, at least one videotape where I speak about Jesus, I simply want to remind you, as it were, of how I see the pre-Easter Jesus. 
and this presupposes the work of modern Jesus scholars and the division of the Gospels into earlier and later layers of the tradition, that is, the Gospels are a developing tradition. And if we go back to the earliest layers of the tradition, um, which are closest to uh, the figure of Jesus, what gestalt, what overall image of the pre-Easter Jesus emerges? And again, for the sake of economy, I prepared the handout which provides you with my three summaries of the pre-Easter Jesus. These are all different versions of the same overall understanding. So let me very quickly take you through uh, these three compact summaries of Jesus. The first of these is the five-stroke summary, which you will find in a number of my books. I sometimes speak of it as a four-stroke summary because sometimes I combine one and two into a single stroke, but I think it's easier to speak of it as a five-stroke summary. The image here, of course, is of a sketch. I don't think we have enough detail about Jesus to do a portrait, but we can do a sketch with five broad strokes. The first of those strokes is that I argue that he was a spirit person. That's my phrase for a person who has vivid and frequent experiences of the sacred, which I spoke about last night, of course. And uh, this is a, a, a cross-cultural category. Indeed, all of these categories are cross-cultural categories. So my claim here is that Jesus was one of these figures in human history who experienced the sacred, or in slightly different language, he was a Jewish mystic. Secondly, he was a healer. The historical evidence that Jesus performed paranormal healings is very strong. Indeed, more healing stories are told about him than about any figure in the Jewish tradition. Third stroke, he was a wisdom teacher, uh, and a teacher of a particular kind of wisdom, a subversive and alternative wisdom which undermined the conventional wisdom of his world, of every world. Uh, he was an enlightened teacher of an enlightenment wisdom, if you will. And he spoke differently, I'm convinced, because he had seen differently. That is, his wisdom teaching comes out of his experience as a spirit person. Fourth stroke, he was a social prophet, like the great social prophets of the Hebrew Bible, figures like Amos, Jeremiah, Micah, and so forth. And like them, he was a radical social critic, a voice of religious social protest directed against the domination system of his day. And fifth and finally, he was a movement founder or movement initiator, by which I mean that a movement came into existence around him during his lifetime, only in embryonic form because his public activity was very brief, perhaps as short as a year and certainly not more than three or four years. And the movement that came into existence around him was a very inclusive and egalitarian movement that subverted and negated the sharp social boundaries of his day. That's my five-stroke summary. My next summary is my one minute and 15 second summary, and I love to tell an extended story about how this came about. But because that story is now in print and on videotape, I can hardly use it anymore. 
I've often thought that Jesus was fortunate to have been executed before the Gospels were written. Can you imagine if the Gospels had been written while he was still alive and then he is an itinerant preacher, he comes into a village and says, leave the dead to bury the dead, and they'll say, we've heard that one, we've heard that one. (laughs) Uh, But I'll still give you a... um, My my, my one minute and 15 second summary was... uh, um, prepared for uh, an appearance on the Today Show about two years ago now. It was uh, on Good Friday, and I'd been invited out to uh, be on the Today Show with John Meyer, a very fine Roman Catholic Jesus scholar from Catholic University in Washington, D.C. And uh, I had been told that uh, we each would get two or three questions about Jesus, and for my long response, I could have up to one minute and 15 seconds. And I was even told what my first question would be. My first question would be, well, what would it have been like to have been a companion of Jesus? What was he like? I was furthermore told that the average viewing audience was five million people. And so I thought to myself, what do I say to five million people in one minute and 15 seconds about Jesus? And I thought, I probably don't start with Mark and Q, (laughs) okay? And so I worked on this thing. I, I must have written out 30 different versions trying to script this and so forth and using my dual electronic countdown timer, I timed it, and finally I, you know, cutting out a word here, a phrase there, I felt like I was writing a telegram about Jesus. And finally I had it down to one minute and 11 seconds. And then, of course, the task became memorizing it so that I could speak it in this conversational manner (laughs) as if it were just sort of coming off the top of my head, you know. And I finally had it down, and the day of the show came. And they don't, uh, uh, they don't tape these. It's all done live, so there's no attempt for, no opportunity for retakes or editing or whatever. And John Meyer got his first question. I was told that he would get his first question first. And I was sort of halfway listening to what he was saying, but really just having this thing going round and round and round in my head. You know, it's the opening line, opening line, opening line, you know. And then uh, the host turned to me and said, and you remember what my question was going to be, the host turned to me and said, well, I imagine there's a lot the Bible doesn't tell us about Jesus. And I thought to myself, that's not my question, you know? (laughs) I I didn't know. Can I say to her, that's the wrong question? (laughs) Uh, And and I was kind of dumbfounded. I thought, "What, what do I do, you know, because this thing was right there, just ready to come out. And I thought, do I, do I try to make something up on the spot in response to that question, which I didn't think was a very interesting question anyway? Do I just go with what I've got, which will sound very strange, you know, like ships passing in the night? And it felt to me like I sat there for five seconds or so, just sort of like this. I've watched the tape since, and I, I don't even miss a beat, which tells you how misleading what's going on in your own head can be compared to what's really going on. So what I said was, yes, that's true. But what it does tell us is very interesting and then went into my response. (laughs) 
and and uh, when I got home and told my wife about this, she said, "You know, you could have gone into politics." <laughs> <laughs> Always answer the question you want to answer, I suppose, is the moral of that story. Anyway, with that <clears throat> three or four minute prologue to my one minute and fifteen second summary, let me now turn to it. I no longer have it conversationally memorized, so I'll just read it to you, and you have it in front of you, of course. He was a peasant, which tells us about his social class. Clearly, he was brilliant. His use of language was remarkable and poetic, filled with images and stories. He had a metaphoric mind. He was not an ascetic, but world-affirming, with a zest for life. There was a social-political passion to him. Like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King, he challenged the domination system of his day. He was a religious ecstatic, a Jewish mystic, if you will, for whom God was an experiential reality. As such, he was also a healer. And there seems to have been a spiritual presence around him, like that reported of St. Francis or the Dalai Lama. And I suggest that, as a figure of history, he was an ambiguous figure. You could experience him and conclude that he was insane, as his family did, or that he was simply eccentric, or that he was a dangerous threat, or you could conclude that he was filled with the Spirit of God. There endeth the one minute and 15 second summary. I turn now to my three-stroke summary this is as compactly as I can put it, and I've put it in two sets of three parallel phrases, but it's the same notion in both sets of phrases. There was to Jesus a spirit dimension, a wisdom dimension, and a political dimension, or the second set of phrases, he was a Jewish mystic and healer, an enlightened wisdom teacher, and a social prophet. My colleague, John Dominic Crossan, who has said many things that I wish that I had said, uh, was being pressed by a television interviewer to come up with a five-second soundbite about Jesus. You know, it'd be really nice to use at the end of the show just a little five-second soundbite as sort of a climax to this interview that had been done with him. And Crossan doesn't like that kind of thing any, any better than I do. You know, it's like five-second soundbite about Jesus and so forth. But finally, uh, after sort of demurring for a minute or two, Cross and said, okay, let's try this. He was a peasant with an attitude. <laughs> and that's not bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. Now, with that sketch of the pre-Easter Jesus, let me now turn to the question, how might we think of the pre-Easter Jesus in relationship to God? I begin with a couple of negative comments. I and most mainline scholars for most of this century, for that matter, do not think that the pre-Easter Jesus thought of himself or spoke of himself with any of the exalted titles attributed to him in the tradition. In all likelihood, he did not think of himself as the Messiah or as the Son of God or, of course, did not think of himself as the second person of the Trinity. Moreover, I think he would have been shocked at the suggestion that he was divine. On one occasion, Mark's Gospel tells us 
somebody comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, this is in the 10th chapter of Mark, and Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So in this sense, in the sense of Jesus' own self-awareness or self-proclamation, I don't think it makes any sense at all to speak of Jesus of Nazareth as divine. And yet, I do think that there are historical grounds for saying that Jesus of Nazareth, the historical Jesus, was experienced by his followers as a manifestation of the sacred already during his lifetime. And that phrase, a manifestation of the sacred, is one you'll hear a number of times in the rest of this talk. Um, if we look at the Gospels themselves, the very early layers of the tradition, we find widely attested in those early layers of the tradition a perception of him on the part of the community as one who had experiences of the Spirit, as one anointed by the Spirit, and as one in whom the Spirit of God was at work explicitly in his teaching and healing. Moreover, my strong hunch is that this was not simply a post-Easter impression of him within the community, but that his followers already during his lifetime sometimes experienced him as one in whom the spirit of God was present, that is, as a manifestation of the sacred. My very strong hunch is that this was also Jesus' own experience namely that he sometimes experienced the spirit around him or in him or on him. I do not mean that he would have spoken of it this way, he may or may not have, but I do mean that the community's estimate of him as one anointed by the spirit reflects not simply their own experience of him, but also his. And this, of course, is what I mean referring to him as a spirit person, as a Jewish mystic, one who would sometimes experience himself as a spirit-anointed person, if you will. Now, how might we imagine this within the framework of panentheism, the notion of God that I've been suggesting to you? Here, William James, in that great book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, once again pro proves to be helpful. James speaks of these other levels or dimensions of reality as being all around us and accessible to us in extraordinary modes of consciousness. And James speaks of religious geniuses, like Mozart was a musical genius, James speaks of religious geniuses as people whose psyches are unusually open to these other dimensions or levels of reality all around us. Most of us, James suggests, have hardened rinds of consciousness separating us from the sacred. But there are some people in whom those rinds of consciousness are more like filmy screens of consciousness. Now, for whatever combination of reasons, genetic disposition, socialization, experience, or spiritual practices, 
Jesus' psyche seems to have been unusually open to the spirit that is all around us to such an extent that the spirit could be present in him or flow through him. That's the way I imagine it. Now, I don't think that he was filled with the spirit or transparent to the spirit from birth onward or continuously so as the adult of his public activity. No doubt there were times when he experienced himself and others experienced him as quite ordinary. I think he got tired and had bad days. But I think there were times when he experienced himself as a person in touch with the spirit and that others did too. And so this leads to the first of my conclusions about Jesus and God. Jesus was experienced already during his lifetime as a manifestation of the sacred. I turn now to the post-Easter Jesus. And I want to remind you at the beginning that I'm defining the post-Easter Jesus as the Jesus of Christian experience and tradition. The post-Easter Jesus of Christian experience means simply that people then and now had experiences of Jesus after his death as a living divine reality. He was for them and continues to be for many people in our own time a figure of the present and not simply of the past. And he is experienced as having the qualities of God, that is, a divine reality. This, it seems to me, is the central meaning of Easter. And again, that's something I'll talk more about at the adult education hour tomorrow morning. And the Easter experience means not simply that people continue to experience Jesus as a figure of the present, as we might with a deceased ancestor or something, but rather he was experienced as Lord and God, that is, as one who had been exalted to God's right hand. What I want to underline, though, in the rest of this talk is the post-Easter Jesus of the developing Christian tradition with the understanding that that's grounded in experience. And here, uh, as on the handout, there are um, three main categories I want to speak about. They're points two, three, and four at the very bottom of the handout. They're just named there without any real detail. I begin with the Jesus and this is the post-Easter Jesus, of course, the post-Easter Jesus of the early developing tradition. This means in those years between his death and the writing of the Gospels. After Easter, a host of metaphors are used to speak about Jesus within the community. He is spoken of as the wisdom of God or the Sophia of God, as the Son of God, as the Servant of God, as the Messiah, as the Word of God, as the Lamb of God, as the great High Priest and sacrifice, and so on. He is spoken about in all of these ways. And as with the images of God in the Hebrew Bible, multiplicity once again points to metaphoricity. Jesus is no more literally the Son of God than Jesus is literally the Lamb of God. What would it mean to be literally the Lamb of God? He's not a sheep. 
Uh, and, and yet, of course, it's uh, interesting that in the Christian tradition, we have traditionally thought that Son of God is sort of a literal statement about Jesus, but it is simply one of those many metaphors. And I might also note in passing, uh, even though I know this is a friendly audience and I'm preaching to the choir in a way, that Jesus as the wisdom of God or Sophia of God seems to be one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the post-Easter metaphors used for Jesus. And that's an argument made not only by feminist scholars such as Elizabeth Schistler Fiorenza, but also by very mainstream scholars like the British scholar James Dunn, who made that argument in a book published in 1979, that Sophia Christology is perhaps the earliest Christology. Now, sometimes these metaphors refer primarily to Christ, but often they also make affirmations about the historical Jesus. Namely, these metaphors are saying, one who was among us as Jesus of Nazareth was also the wisdom of God, the word of God, and the son of God. So that's the Jesus of the very early developing tradition of multiplicity of metaphors. A second stage in the development of the post-Easter Jesus of Christian tradition is the canonical Jesus. And by the canonical Jesus, I mean simply the Jesus whom we meet on the pages of the New Testament, on the surface level of the New Testament, in the Gospels, but also in the letters of Paul and so forth. And it's useful to think of the New Testament as the developing tradition of the community crystallized into writing at various moments in time. Okay. Gospel, of, Gospel of Mark, the crystallization of the tradition around the year 70 and so forth. And to make just a few comments about the canonical Jesus of the Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is portrayed as still more human than divine, to use language uh, uh, in a real shorthand fashion here. That is, uh, even though the synoptic Jesus can do spectacular things like feeding the multitude with a few loaves and so forth, he is still a recognizably human figure. And in Mark's Gospel, the earliest of the synoptic Gospels, Mark addresses epiphanies to the reader at certain points in the Gospel. At Jesus' baptism, Mark lets the reader know through the heavenly voice, the bat kol, which literally means the daughter of a voice, the heavenly voice which says to Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved son. And then roughly eight chapters later, at the beginning of the second half of the gospel, that heavenly voice speaks once again, primarily to the reader, saying, this is my beloved son. So there are these epiphanies or disclosures in the synoptic gospels of the ultimate identity of Jesus but it's interesting that he never speaks that way about himself. So he's still more human than divine in the synoptics. In John's Gospel, Jesus is, of course, more divine than human. I mean, he still is a historical figure. He can be killed and all of that. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of himself with the most exalted kind of language. All the great I am statements are in John. None of them are in the synoptics those statements in which Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, 
I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or statements in which Jesus affirms his um, identity with God, I and the Father are one, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and so forth. It's very interesting that John's Gospel does not have the baptism of Jesus or the transfiguration story of Jesus. That's the one in Mark's Gospel where the voice says, this is my beloved son, and so forth. John doesn't have these epiphany stories because John doesn't need any epiphany stories. The whole of the Gospel of John is an epiphany, a disclosure of the identity of Jesus. And hence again, the Jesus of John is more divine than human. <clears throat> I turn now to the last of the stages that I want to speak about in terms of the development of the post-Easter Jesus of Christian tradition, the creedal Jesus, the Jesus we meet in the great creeds of the church, especially the Nicene Creed of the early 4th century, uh, 325 to be specific. Now, the Nicene Creed has a Trinitarian pattern to it, of course. Article 1 is about God the Father, Article 2 about God the Son, Article 3 about God the Spirit. So the very pattern of the Creed is saying, in effect, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Moreover, in the second article of the Creed, Jesus is spoken of as very God of very God, begotten, not made, light of light, of one substance with the Father, and so forth. Now, before I address the question of what we might make of those claims about Jesus and the Creed, let me share with you uh, an insight that came to me with particular vividness about 18 months ago when I was in South Africa. The insight, to put it in an abstraction, and then I'll explain it, is that it's very helpful to think of the creed as the indigenization of early Christian belief into the thought categories of fourth century Hellenistic philosophy. Okay? Indigenization into the thought categories of fourth century Hellenistic philosophy. Now, in a way, I've known that for 20 or 30 years. But it really hit me, as I mentioned, when I was in South Africa um, a year ago last fall. And I was there for about a month doing a lecture tour to a number of universities. And one of the places where I spoke was a black theological seminary. And uh, an interesting experience for all kinds of reasons, but I'll just share with you a story from my ride back to Pretoria with the white professor who was my host. And he was telling me that since the ending of apartheid, uh, these black seminarians, and perhaps more broadly, uh, the black church in South Africa, at least the part that's part of the Reformed Church, is being encouraged to develop its own Christology and its own creed. And that one of the reasons for that is that in I don't know if this is true of black African culture generally or of the black African culture in this part of South Africa. One of the reasons for that is that the status of only son is not a very high or respected status in that culture. 
an only son is a social isolate. You can't get at an only son. You have no way of relating to an only son. And a much higher status in that culture is the status of eldest brother. And so if the purpose of the creed was to speak of Jesus in the most exalted language known in the culture, you would not call him an only son in South Africa, or at least in black culture. You would speak of him as our eldest brother because you have access to your eldest brother. And that was just very interesting to me because it underlined how culturally particular and how culturally relative the language of the creed is. Uh, to make a point that I've made elsewhere, obviously if the creed had been constructed in a matriarchal culture instead of a patriarchal, patriarchal culture, Jesus conceivably still could have been the son of God, but he would not have been the son of the father. Okay? Okay. So keeping in mind that, that the creed is a culturally relative document, which is tremendously important, let me now turn to what I see as the threefold purpose of the creed. <clears throat> First, the creed affirms what Christian experience and devotion know, namely, that the risen living Christ is divine or is God. That is, that seems to be an element of post-Easter experience. The risen living Christ is, a, is experienced as a divine reality. The creed affirms that experience by speaking of Jesus as divine. Secondly, the creed resolves, or at least tries to resolve, a central intellectual problem facing the early Christian movement. Namely, how do you reconcile the experience of the risen Christ as divine with monotheism? Because early Christianity, with its Jewish roots, was a monotheistic religion. Does the affirmation that Christ is divine mean that after Easter, now we got two gods, God and Christ? <laughs> or how do you put the experience of uh, Christ as a divine reality together with monotheism? The Trinity is the answer. I mean, whether it's a completely adequate answer is another question, but the Trinity is the answer that emerged in the fourth century. And in order to understand that, it's helpful to realize that the language of three persons, one God, does not mean what that language would ordinarily mean in English. When we use the word person, we think of a discrete center of personality. So I think for many people, the language of three persons, one God, suggests that the Trinity is kind of a committee of three within a unifying nimbus or something like that. Okay? But the word persona in Latin, from which we get the English word person, and the Greek synonym prosopon, means something quite different. Persona and prosopon refer to the mask worn by an actor in the Greek and Roman theaters. And actors wore masks not for the sake of concealment, but for the sake of playing different roles. And to say that God is three persons, three persona, 
is to say that God is known to us in primarily three different roles, wearing primarily three different masks, or that God has primarily three different expressions, if you will. And thus, um, the Trinity reconciles monotheism with the experience of Christ as a divine reality by saying the risen living Christ is one of the masks of God. The risen living Christ is the face of God or is God with a human face. But it's one God. And finally, it's worth noting that the Creed also makes an affirmation about the pre-Easter Jesus. It does this by not mentioning him. Now, it's interesting that the Creed has what Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar has called a missing center. It goes from conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, straight to was crucified by Pontius Pilate. There's no mention of anything in between. And when I, when I was younger, I thought that was a terrible defect of the Creed. That shows how unimportant the historical Jesus was to these 4th century Christians. They don't even mention him. I now see it as a real advantage, partly because I'm glad there aren't any creedal affirmations about the historical Jesus, uh, but also because I think mentioning the birth and then the death is a way of saying that what happened in Jesus was of God. That he came from God, conceived by the Spirit, and after his death returns to God, it's as if the creed frames the life of the historical Jesus and says about the historical Jesus, what happened in him was of God. Cumulatively, to begin to move to my conclusion, what this amounts to, all of these affirmations about the post-Easter Jesus, is that Jesus is for Christians the decisive revelation of God. He is the epiphany of God, the decisive manifestation of God, or to use a metaphor um, as something more visual, he is the face of God. Now, very importantly, to say that for us as Christians, Jesus is the decisive manifestation of God, need not, and in my judgment, should not mean he's the only manifestation of God. Um, partly we affirm that other figures in our own tradition are also manifestations of God, and partly I think one of the things we have learned in this century, uh, in an age of religious pluralism, is that of course the same God is known in other religious traditions and in other religious figures as well. So to say Jesus is the decisive manifestation of God means that for us, we see in Jesus most clearly what God is like. Let me linger on this point for another minute or two by using some language that I like very much that comes from the um, British-American philosopher of religion, John Hick, who retired um, short time ago from Claremont Graduate School. 
wrote many books about the relationship between Christianity and the world's religions. And Hick, in one of his books, is talking about that um, traditional Christian claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And Hick uh, thinks we shouldn't think of that statement as true, but he gives us a way of understanding that statement that enables us to recognize the intensity of Christian devotion out of which language like that comes. Hicks says, we should think of the statement, Jesus is the only way of salvation, as expressing the enthusiasm of Christians who had experienced being reconnected to God through Jesus. And then in two phrases, which I'll quote directly from him, which I like very much, he says we should understand such statements as, quote, the poetry of devotion and the hyperbole of the heart, end of quote. It's when one lover says to the beloved, you are the most beautiful person in the world. It would be a wooden-minded literalist who, overhearing that, would say, eh, uh, top 20%, maybe, maybe, maybe even only top 50%, but most beautiful person in the world? No. You know. No, no, we understand language like that. We understand that it comes out of the intensity of devotion. And I don't suggest that we continue using language like Jesus is the only way of salvation, but thinking of it that way enables us to honor the emotional place that that language comes out of without turning it into a doctrinal statement. So, for Christians, Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. Probably two minutes to go here. As I conclude, I want to emphasize that for me and for many of my colleagues, both post-Easter Jesus and the pre-Easter Jesus are the decisive revelation of God. Both the canonical Jesus and the historical Jesus matter. For most of us, it's not an either or, as Luke Johnson suggests. Rather, it's a both-and. What we can glimpse through the historical study of Jesus, both the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus, can be a powerful resource for revisioning Christian theology at the end of the 20th century. The Jesus who was a spirit person testifies to the reality of God, the Jesus who was a wisdom teacher invites us to another way of living, to life centered in the spirit, and the Jesus who was a social prophet calls us to an alternative social vision. And he is also the light of the world and the bread of life and the way, the truth, and the life. He is for us all of them. In the words of the New Testament, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we have an icon 
of God. In Jesus, we see the face of God. In Jesus, we see what God is like. Thank you. Well, I apologize that we have only 10 minutes before our lunch break, and because you haven't been sitting all that long right now, maybe you can make do without the one-minute stretch break, and we can go immediately to Q&A time. And um, um, uh, obviously, uh, the most appropriate questions would be about uh, pre-Easter Jesus, post-Easter Jesus, relationship to God, any of that that you might want to get to. Yes, please. question is about uh, the scene at Caesarea Philippi, uh, which is found in all three of the Gospels, and of course uh, Matthew and Luke have it because they take it over from Mark. It's Mark 8, 27 through 30. It's that passage where uh, Jesus asked the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? And they say, uh, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Okay. My strong hunch is that that's probably a post-Easter construction. Uh, the Jesus Seminar, of which I'm a member, prints that passage in black, which expresses a strong degree of consensus that these are not words of Jesus, but the voice of the community. Now, uh, so, so uh, maybe that sounds too easy. We handle it by getting rid of it. Uh, but there are a number of reasons for being skeptical about it, including the fact that it's the only place in Mark's gospel where any follower of Jesus during his lifetime calls him anything extraordinary. And it's very interesting, even as Mark tells the story, that it happens in private, so that it's not part of the public message of Jesus at all. And though maybe this is making too fine a point, but the Jesus of Mark's gospel does not even say, you got it right, Peter. Matthew does that with that. Matthew has, has Jesus say, blessed are you, Simon and Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and so forth. So the Jesus of Matthew's gospel openly affirms this and accepts this. And the Jesus of Mark's gospel uh, just says, don't talk about this with anybody. Now, is that an acceptance or not? It's a little bit ambiguous, you know. Um, and the last quick comment about it, the fact that it is the only time prior to the trial of Jesus where there's any exchange like that between Jesus and a human being 
almost seems as if it's Mark's way of explaining how it is that Jesus could be the Son of God and so forth, and yet he never talked about it and nobody ever said anything about it while he was alive. So you construct this little scene where it happens in private. It's as if it's one of uh, Mark's epiphanies to the reader almost. Okay, good. Let me crystallize it for the tape and for all of you. Um, the question moves from the historical Jesus, where we can know some things through historical study and so forth, to uh, the risen Christ. Um, and, and are we then moving into the area of faith? And in particular, uh, the comment and the question flowing out of it refers to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. So Paul speaks of the resurrection of Jesus as if it were a fact and not a matter of faith. What do, how, do we, how, how should we think of all of that? Fair crystallization? Okay. Let me ask you all before I respond. Um, I'm not trying to pin you down to anything. How many of you are planning to be here for the adult ed hour tomorrow? Well, okay, that's a little bit less than half of you, so I will say s something substantial about your question rather than saying, that's what I'm going to talk about tomorrow morning, okay? Okay, okay. Um, 
first of all, Paul, and for that matter, the writers of the Gospels, regard the resurrection of Jesus or the Easter experience as a fact and not simply as something that can only be accepted as faith. The premise of your question is right on target. Now, having said that, let me now go on to say that the resurrection of Jesus need not have involved anything happening to his corpse. There are two reasons for saying that, maybe three, but at least two that I'll mention here. One is the very important distinction between two words that are easily confused, resuscitation and resurrection. Resuscitation means that a person dead or believed to be dead comes back to life again and resumes the existence that he or she had before. So resuscitation is resumption of previous existence and it intrinsically involves something happening to a corpse. Resurrection in a first century Jewish frame of reference means, and it's you know, it takes us almost beyond, it takes us beyond the edge of history, so it's, there's a little bit of ineffability here, but I don't want that to be a dodge. But resurrection means entry into a different kind of existence. Not resumption of previous existence, but entry into a different kind of existence. A resurrected person, for example, will not die again. A resuscitated person will, <laughs> okay? Uh, it, as an entry into a different kind of existence, resurrection, in a sense, involves entry into ex an existence that is beyond the categories of space and time, probably even beyond the categories of life and death. At least, death will be no more. Now, resurrection could involve something happening to a corpse, namely, the corpse could be transformed, but it need not involve anything happening to a corpse. So that's the first reason I say the resurrection of Jesus need not have involved something happening to his corpse. We're not talking about resuscitation, we're talking about resurrection. The second reason is that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, from which the verse you quoted comes. That's the earliest report, not really report, it's the earliest discussion of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, written around the year 51 or 52, 20 years in round numbers after the death of Jesus, 20 years before the earliest gospel mark. And in that chapter as a whole, there are two things that Paul says that are direct. One is when he reports the names of the people to whom the resurrected Christ appeared. You know, he appeared first of all to Peter and then to the 12, and then to 500 of the brothers and sisters all at once, and then to James. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In that list, Paul regularly uses the verb appeared, which is the verb that most commonly goes with a vision. And Paul includes his own experience of the risen Christ in that list of appearances. And if we ask when did Paul experience the risen Christ and how? The answer is on the Damascus Road in a vision 
some two to three and maybe as many as five years after the death of Jesus, and yet Paul regards his own visionary experience as belonging in the same list of appearances to the others. And of course, what's a vision? Well, it is to a large extent a subjective experience. And I don't mean to demean it by saying subjective, but if you're with somebody who's having a vision, you're not going to see the same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? A vision is like a waking dream, if you will. Okay? And, and I think uh, visions may, in fact, disclose truth. So I'm not poo-pooing anything by saying, oh, it was just a vision. Okay? But it was a vision. That's the first thing that's interesting about what Paul does in that chapter. He regards the appearances of the risen Christ in his own case, and perhaps in the cases of the others as well, as visionary experiences. The other fascinating thing that he does in that chapter is he addresses the question, with what kind of body are the dead raised? And as he answers that question, he explicitly denies that it was the physical body. It is not the physical body that is raised, he says, but the spiritual body. And then to amplify his point, he says, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We're not talking protoplasm here. Okay? And then when he tries to explain the relationship between the physical body and the spiritual body, he uses an analogy which expresses... Uh, some continuity, but within the framework of radical discontinuity. The analogy, of course, is the seed to the full-grown plant. The physical body is to the spiritual body as a seed is to the full-grown plant. Obviously, the full-grown plant comes out of the seed, but in terms of appearances, they're radically different. So the striking, one of the striking things about 1 Corinthians 15 is that in this earliest discussion of the resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament, um, uh, it's explicitly denied that it's a physical resurrection. Now, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body in the creed, notice it doesn't say physical body there. It's probably using the word body in the same way that Paul is using it in 1 Corinthians 15. And one of the ironies about this is that very frequently, First uh, Corinthians 15 will be used by our, our, our conservative brothers and sisters to defend a physical resurrection. When in fact the point of the chapter is we're not talking physical body here. To bring all of this together, I would say that the claim that Jesus is a living figure of the present the claim that um, uh, that the risen living Christ is is in one sense a fact and not a faith claim. That is, by fact here, I don't mean it's the kind of thing that a scientist can verify, not that kind of fact, but I mean it is an experience. It's not just well, he was here, and I believe he's still alive. For some of us, it is, it is that, because we haven't had an experience of the risen living Christ. But for many people throughout Christian history, and to this day, 
the risen living Christ is an element of experience and not primarily an article of faith. So in that sense, I would say, yeah, um, the resurrection really happened. But I doubt very much that it involved anything happening to the corpse of Jesus. Last quick comment about that. Nah, nah, I won't make that one. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And, and there'll be an opportunity to explore more of that tomorrow morning. Uh, with some apologies for not having more opportunity for Q&A about uh, 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 Jesus and the subject of Jesus and God here, let me um, uh, suggest that it's lunchtime. And in the afternoon session, we have uh, a full 90 minutes, and the concluding Q&A this afternoon can cover anything from the day. So if you have leftover stuff about Jesus or Jesus and God, there will be an opportunity to uh, get at that in this afternoon session, too. So this afternoon we talk about uh, opening to the sacred, the heart of spirituality. We'll see you then. Diane, did you have any instructions about lunch or anything? Enjoy it? Okay, 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 good enough. Yep.